Um, okay, well, we're going to be in. We're going to be looking at the final section of Isaiah. So here, here's how the next um, couple of weeks are going to go. At least the plan. Again, Isaiah is a massive book and is filled with all kinds of different uh, things to think about and to look at and and to wrestle with. But um, the plan is to wrap up the overview of the book, because we've just kind of been going, we've been sort of looking at the big picture, what Isaiah is happening, how it's divided, and things like that, and some, some little, basically the overall storyline in it. And then next week, to go into uh, some, of the, some of the difficult passages, believe it or not, we haven't really talked about those yet, um, the passages that are like, what is that? What does he mean there? What is he even talking about? Some of that stuff. Um, and, and look at that. And I don't, I'm not sure if that's only going to take one week or two weeks. Uh, then we'll probably look at the book of Micah briefly, which will take much a much shorter time. Probably we're going to cover that in one week. And then we'll be back in 2 Kings as we kind of head towards uh, the, the, the time when Babylon comes in and carries off the um, Judea into, into squalor, into uh, captivity. And so we'll... we'll be heading into that over the coming weeks. Um, last week, what we talked about, we dealt with a, quite a bit, honestly. There, a huge section, uh, 40 to 66, which we're going to wrap up tonight. And this last section of the book of Isaiah is 27 chapters. Just broadly speaking, it's 27 chapters. And the purpose of Isaiah really changes right there in chapter 40. It, it, it's totally different. It's like reading two different books, practically. Um, not that they don't have similar themes, but just that they're, they're, they're largely different in what they're trying to accomplish. In the first 39 books, you have historical stories of, of what's taking place, and you're, you're seeing judgment that's being proclaimed against certain nations and things like that. And then in chapter 40, it really changes to, to going on the other side of exile and really looking back, almost. Um, telling them, yes, what's going to happen in the future from here, where we go from here but also how they need to think about the captivity that they were taken off into. And so Isaiah tells them, you know, that in 41 to 47, there is this, the, the desire is overall to give them hope, to, to encourage them, that this has been for your good, whether you know it or not. And, and in, but in 41 to 47, there's a, it's set up kind of like a trial between the people that were in captivity and God himself. And it, it sort of reads almost like the book of Job, if you remember right towards the end of the book of Job, where, where he kind of says, where were you when I laid the foundations, and sort of so, things like that. That's almost the way that section of Isaiah reads. It, it's, it's where, you know, he says, well, okay, well, bring your evidence. If you've got a charge against me, this is God speaking, if you've got a charge against me, why don't you bring your evidence? And so it's sort of set up like this little trial. The, the Jews have been in captivity for some years, and they're frustrated Obviously, they're questioning whether or not God even exists or does he even care about us. And he's saying there's two big points that he makes in that whole section, which is, wait a second, you sinned against me. So don't you understand first that in your sin that you committed, you deserve to be punished. And second, I rescued you from captivity. Do you understand that? You were captured by the most powerful nation in the world and... I sent Cyrus to come rescue you out of captivity. So you need to understand both of those things. Without me, you would still be in captivity. And this punishment was for your sins, and it has been for your good. And then after that, 
So that's uh, 41 to 47. And then, and then after that, we get in chapters 49 all the way up to 55, you, we have this mysterious figure that begins speaking that identifies himself in two ways. He identifies himself as the servant of the Lord and as Israel. This singular figure who is a servant of the Lord and who is Israel comes to speak. And he says that he, ha- he is the one that God has appointed to live as Israel and live as his servant, as Israel was supposed to. And in, in 41 to 47, he, God tells them over, hey, you were supposed to be my servant, and you're not living that way. Well, in 49, we're introduced to the servant. He's going to be the servant that Israel couldn't be. He's going to be the Israel that Israel couldn't be. And he it tells them, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live as a light to the nations. I'm going to be a light to the nations. And that's the section where we find out that he is actually not just a servant, he's a suffering servant. He's one that's actually going to go and suffer on behalf of Israel in order to be Israel for them and in order to restore to them their status as a light to the nations. And what we find out is it's not just Israel that's in mind, but it's actually a broad swath of lots of people uh, made up of Jew and Gentile. He's going to restore them to the true people of God. And that's what we see coming to fruition by chapter 55. And so tonight, what we're going to look at is chapters 55 to 66. And this can, don't let this be complicated. It's really not that complicated, but just, you just got to think about it. You can't think about it as 56, then 57, then 58. You know, it's not built that way, all right? We've talked about a number of times, I've talked about it on Sunday, I've talked about it in here, but you remember the term chiasm? Do you remember the term chiasm? You know, it's good that I just go over this. Let's go over it again. How about we just, could we just take it one more time? Maybe just take it from the top. How about that? A chiasm is a section of scripture that's built differently, all right? When we write a story or when we make an argument, how do we build it? Point one, point two, point three, right? Before point one is an introduction, after point three is a conclusion. Which one's your strongest point? Point three. You build, right? You make the weaker points up front, and they slowly build until you get to the last point, and it's supposed to just knock them out, right? This is going to be the convincing point. Then you conclude it, and it's over. When you get to a section of Scripture that's built as a chiasm, that's not how it's structured. It's structured so that the point is kind of in the middle, And before that point in the middle and right after that point are two points that say basically the same thing. And then you can go, you can do that forever. Uh, They can go back chapters upon chapters upon chapters if they want, or they can do it over just a few verses, or they can do it however long they want. But they build it, the point is they build it different. Where the point is really in the middle, you build to it and then you build back from it. All right? Does that make sense? It's sort of like a swing. Yeah, you, you swing in. Well, when you draw that out, point one, point two, point three, point two, point one, like that, it makes this little arrowhead. You can think of it like an arrowhead, or it looks like the point, the, yeah, it looks like a greater than sign, or it looks like the inside of an X, which is why they call it a chiasm. Everything's got to be so complicated. Why does it have to be so complicated? Um, but point is, sometimes biblical writers, they don't tell you when they're going to do this. They just sort of do it. And you're just supposed to pick it up. 
And so congratulations, here you're in the middle of it. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with the middle, and then we're going to work our way out from there, all right? So the middle of this little section is, that's it, comprised of these like parallels is chapters 60 to 62. And what's helpful to understand, if this is the point that he's building to, that what is he describing here, but describing a, a time when God's kingdom, when the servant of God is going to bring God's kingdom to fruition. And that kingdom is going to be where he actually takes the people that are lost in sin and he makes them citizens of his kingdom. So he restores them to being the people of God. This is, so essentially, if the end of Isaiah is what the whole book is really building to, and 60 to 62 is what that last section is building to, then you might say the whole point of the book of Isaiah is building to this final uh, culminating event where the servant of God, who has suffered on behalf of his people, restores the people to be the light to the nations that they were supposed to be. Okay, Where, where the servants are actually saying to God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That language sounds familiar to you, doesn't it? Where, where the servants are saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're familiar with that statement too, right? The culminating event is when this servant of God comes and restores his people, and they, they, they're restored to what they were supposed to be. Let's look at Isaiah 60, so we can get a little taste of what this is like. Isaiah 60, um, verses 1 to 5 here. Um, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. All right. It's important desperately important when you remember the, the Old Testament, when you, when you read the prophets, to remember what Israel was supposed to be, what their charge was. We've talked about this a thousand times if we've talked about it once. They were to be a light to the rest of the world, a light to the nations. They were not just a kingdom of priests for themselves. They were a kingdom of priests for the rest of the world. They were the ones that the world would come to and they would teach them how to serve the Lord. That's what made them a kingdom of priests. That's why the Lord had selected them. Not only to bring forth the seed that was promised in Genesis 3, but also to introduce the world to the God that created them. That's their purpose. So what should we expect then? But when the people of God are restored to be a light to the nations, that's exactly what he means. 
you're going to now be a kingdom of priests. So you're going to go, therefore, into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. What is that? That's making you a kingdom of priests. That's telling you this is what your mission is. It's, it's a restored mission. This has always been your mission. But now it's coming to fruition because the servant has come. And so essentially what's, what he's describing here in Isaiah is, yes, it's going to be dark. Yes, it's going to get bad before it gets better. But what's going to happen in the end is that you're going to be restored. And you're going to watch as all these people are coming to you and wanting you to introduce them to the God that you serve. Right? Does that, that make sense? It's described in poetry they're not really streaming to you, you're going to them. That's the change, but it's poetic. All right. Um, so in the day when his kingdom comes, what does he say there? But that the nations will be made to bow down the, to the servant and to serve him. And what he describes as a city will be a, 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 essentially the worship of him. And those who refuse to worship him will be cast out. They're going to be destroyed. Let's look at Isaiah 60, 10 to 14. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I, had, I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations and their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to, beautifully place, uh, to, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious." The son of those who afflicted, uh, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet, and they shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So, so, and we're we're we'll talk a little bit about this in just a second. But what's difficult about some of these passages is the city language. And I think one of the reasons why it's, it's difficult is because he's, he seems to describe a city and then it describes a people. It, it, it's, you realize at some point it's not describing a people, it's describing a city. Uh, or it's not describing a city, it's describing a people. And so it, it sort of gets, the lines get blurred because he's using that, again, that poetic language to describe the people of God and, and how this interaction is going to go. And what we see is that the people will recognize, largely the world is going to recognize, the gift that they have been given is that they have the, the, the gospel message, essentially is what we would call it now. They have the gospel message, and they're giving this, they're disseminating this to the world. In them lies the truth. They know, they're recognizing that this is the truth, and they come, and, but it's not everybody. It seems like it's everybody at first, and you, you read it, and you think, well, all the kings, everybody... The sons of the Babylonians that destroyed you or whatever, they're coming to you and they're, they're bringing gifts, but it's clearly not everybody. Because those who fail to receive the gospel or receive the message that's being propagated here, they are destroyed. 
They're utterly laid waste. Now, how do we know what this is in reference to? Well, John makes it clear in Revelation. He actually quotes Isaiah here, or makes a veiled reference to Isaiah here, and I believe, I didn't mark it down, and I don't know why, but it's in Revelation, I think it's 21, where he talks about the kings of the nations coming and streaming in. One of you find it and tell it to me, and we'll get to it whenever you find it. Just shout it out. But basically, all the nations come streaming in, and the gates of the eternal city stay open day and night, and Christ is on the throne. That's the way John depicts the new heavens and new earth. And so what we know is being described here is sort of a ramp up into the final days when Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom forever. That nation upon nation will stream in and and bring gifts. And again, it's John referencing Isaiah and saying, look, this is all coming to fruition in Christ's ministry. It's one long process of bringing this whole thing about where the nations will come in and serve the servant through his servants. Um, now again, the difficulty of this passage is that it references this the redeemed people of God, and then it, it switches to referring to them as a city, and then back to referring to them as a people. And so we can get lost sometimes in the metaphor of going, oh, this is the city of Jerusalem, but that's not what Isaiah has in mind. But you have to understand also how a, a, a Jewish mind would read Hebrew poetry. The city of Jerusalem is intimately connected to God himself. The temple is the portal by which a Jew accesses God. You, understand? you get that? We, we've, we've, we've talked about this a number of times, even as far back as uh, the establishment of the temple in 1 Kings it, when, when Solomon builds the temple, and you, you can even go back on the Wednesday night podcast, I'm sure, and you can find that little, I think it's three Wednesdays long, of when we dealt with the temple, and we talked about how it's built even. And so the view, the understanding of that temple, just in summary of that, is that it's a, it's a portal. It's an access point. The only access point between God's creation and God himself. In the fall, the, the Garden of Eden is essentially closed. And access to God is also essentially closed with it. And so the people have no way of getting back to God. And so it's not until the Jews are let out of Egypt in the Exodus where they're brought around Sinai that they realize, we have it again. Here it is. We have access to God again here at Sinai. But do they have to come back to Sinai to worship God? No. How does God remedy that situation? He prepares for them a tabernacle. A mobile portal whereby people can once again gain access to God. That's what the tabernacle is. That's why at the end of Exodus you have this massive section of just a long description of what the tabernacle is supposed to, is supposed to be. Down to the most intimate of details, what color the, the curtains are, what fabric they're made of, how, how they're supposed to be overlaid with gold and the, the, the furniture, and where the furniture is supposed to be arranged, who can enter into this tabernacle and who needs to stay out, how they must enter in, what they must do when they enter in, how everything, the dimensions of it, all of this is built in meticulous detail, and everything is given by God to Moses that he would build it exactly that way. And the whole thing is designed to mirror that heavenly throne room picture. 
so that the person that's entering in before God on behalf of the people would be essentially entering into that portal that's an earthly representation of the heavenly throne room where they're accessing the very feet of God, essentially. So when the temple comes to fruition, now it's sitting in Jerusalem. It is the epicenter of access to God. That's how it's seen. So think about what happens to the Jew when the temple collapses, when they're hauled off into captivity, or when the temple is no more, or when God's glory disappears from the temple in Ezekiel, or various things happen around the temple. Somebody marches in and does, desecrates the temple, as happened several times in Jewish history. What happens to them when they see that? Well, it's, it's like tearing away the very fabric of the universe. It's not just a building that collapses, you understand. The fabric of the universe is torn asunder. And so for a Jew, the only way they can comprehend God living with His people is right there on top of Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And so what the Old Testament authors do, like Isaiah, and what John does in Revelation is he goes, okay, I'm going to use that Old Testament language of the temple and the city of Jerusalem and Mount Zion so that you understand what I'm talking about. But now, instead of it only being that mountain or that hill or that city, it's everywhere. It's all over creation. So imagine, just for a second, if instead of one priest, you have a whole people who have access to God. Everyone. And instead of one locale, it's spread everywhere, all over the earth. So what happens is they describe Zion and Jerusalem, and then they go, new earth. What? I thought it was Zion and Jerusalem. Well, take Zion and Jerusalem and make it a new earth, and you got the idea, right? Take a priest and make him all the people, and you got the idea. So it's a way of kind of truncating the language for a Jewish audience. You understand? You tracking? Okay. Um, I don't know why I started going into that, but I did. Uh, so, okay, well, so, so, so the point is, you, we, can get, we can get twisted when we're talking. Is he talking about a city? Is he talking about just a specific location? Or is he talking about, is he talking about everywhere? Well, you get the idea. It's both and. All right. So what, he's, what seems to be clear by the end of the section in 62, at the end of 62, is that he's referring that the, the city and the names for the city are basically a stand-in for the redeemed people of God. And what it is is they have citizenship in the servant's kingdom and have thus become a reconstituted people of God. When we read this in the New Testament, we get so twisted when, when Paul says, your life is hidden with Christ on high. Your citizenship is in heaven, from which we await. Right? We get, well, what do you, my citizenship is in heaven? I don't understand what you mean by that. Well, the portal, let's keep referring to that kind of language. The, the portal the access that you have to God is where? With Christ. It's with him. Who, who, is, who is right now interceding on your behalf? Christ. So your life, then, 
is there with him. Because he is right now your portal. Now, that, some of that's going to change slightly. Not that Christ gets any less, but that God comes to live with his people. So now, again, portal goes over the whole earth, all right? So it changes slightly, but right now Paul's saying, your citizenship is there. It's like you're at the base of Mount Zion, and you're looking up at the temple where the priest is making a sacrifice on your behalf there in the temple, and it would be like somebody saying, putting their arm around you and saying, you see the smoke that's going up from the temple? That's your life right there. Your very existence is tied to that lamb that's right there. You, you tracking with me? Okay, so, he, so he's referring to a people who have now gained citizenship and thus have been reconstituted as the people of God. Look at Isaiah 62, 10 to 12. Go, th- go, through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lip, lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called, sought out. What is this? What does he say here? A city not forsaken. The people are called a city not forsaken. You see that the language comes together now. Now he's bringing the language of the citizens, the individual members, coming together as a city not forsaken. Uh, what is a city? What, what, what makes something a city? What is it? People! A population! A populace! Does it have borders? Well, yeah, I mean, it's got borders, right? But what if the borders for the people was all of creation? Would it still be proper to call them a city? Sure. Sure. The city that doesn't necessarily have to be a certain size. The city I came from was 37,000 people in a county of 70,000 people, right on the edge, smallest county in Texas, right on the edge of Dallas County. And here, the population is 100,000 people, 40,000 college students, another 40,000 in Northport. In the county, I think it's 200,000, something like that, in Tuscaloosa County. So the, the, the divisions don't necessarily have to be a certain size. It's just uh, people that sort of make it up in a certain locale. Well, this, the locale here is all of creation that he's turning this into. And, and the point is, this is the culmination of the book of Isaiah. This is what it's building to. Here is the point. A reconstituted people of God whose citizenship has been bought and paid for by the servant of God, the true Israel. So the fulfillment of the kingdom then, how do we think about this? John describes it in Revelation as coming to fruition. And yet, we also know, uh, well, some of this is already coming about into fruition. There are people from all over the world sitting in churches right now. On Sunday morning, you will be singing praises to the Lord while a massive group of people around the world are doing the exact same thing. There are people that are 
really high up in places of authority, kings, princes. It's hard to imagine that they're out there, <laughs> but, and, and, and maybe I could not tell you one name right now as of this moment, but perhaps there are princes, rulers, senators, maybe, House of Representative members, maybe members of the judiciary that are singing praises on Sunday morning to God. So in some capacity, this has come to fruition, Jesus tells His people in Matthew 5 that you're going to be a city on a hill. Your lamp is not to be hidden. You're going to be the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. We're seeing some of this already happen. We're being told of the reconstituted. We're, we're seeing that that's already happening. Look at um, Isaiah. I'm trying to find, find out where I am. Isaiah 61, 1-4. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor, day of vengeance, excuse me, of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall ri uh, raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastation of many generations. This, this is right in the middle of this section in Isaiah where all of this is coming to fruition. And he says here, this is what's happening. We're, we're, we're binding up the brokenhearted. We're preaching good news to the poor. And they're receiving and they're hearing and, and they're being built up as oaks of righteousness. Well, when does that happen? Is that revelation? Well, Luke tells us in Luke 4, 16 to, 7, 16 to 21, and he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up and read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind and set liberty, set at liberty those who have been oppressed to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So when does that come about? The Isaiah, the oaks of righteousness and and this whole like bringing about the kingdom of God and reconstituting the people and all of this, when does that come about? Is it in John, John's picture of revelation in the end times? Well, ultimately, yeah. The consummation, the fulfillment, the finalization of all of that, yeah. But it starts in Jesus. Well, it starts and ends with Jesus, to be fair, but it starts with Jesus' earthly ministry. That's what he's doing. Remember when John sends his people from prison and they, they, are you the one or we should we expect another? And he says, good news is preached to the poor. The blind receive sight. Blessed is he who is not offended by me. What is he saying? Yeah, it's starting. Remember Isaiah 61? It's, it's starting right now. What happens? How, how do these people get there? Well, so we move back one little, one little bracket. So you got the 60, 60 to 62, and then before that and right after that, 
you get another section. They, they parallel each other. They say effectively the same thing. And what do we see in there but that God's restored kingdom is built and focused on the people that are repentant of their sins. Does this sound familiar to you? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the, the section that leads up to God reconstituting these people is a message of repentance. Look at uh, 59, 1-8. Behold, the, we won't read it all, but behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have been made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to the law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies. And from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their, their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works and their, are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run, on, run to evil and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts and are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know and there is no justice in their path. They have made their roads crooked no one who treads on them knows peace. Now, that's all the bad news for them. Um, however, what have we seen in the past? When, when that has been preached to them, what have they done? Well, in the past, they've just ignored it, and they've hardened their heart. But what we're, what we're seeing now is that in spite of all the wickedness that he lays out there for them, this is all the wickedness you've done, the response is this newfound desire for righteousness from them. Go ahead. Oh, I'm too far. Oh, it, it double-clicked on me, I think. Okay, repentant. Does that, that help? Sorry, it, sometimes it'll double-click on me when I only clicked once. So just... I was ahead. Let's start over, all right? Oh, it was something with chiasm. That's where we started. Okay, let's go back. Um, no, I'm kidding. So, let's go back. So, step one. He lays out all of the sins for which they're guilty. And what we're going to find is that these people are actually repentant rather than, rather than hardening their heart. What we've seen in the past, all throughout Isaiah, really throughout the prophets, is I tell you these things and you just won't listen, right? You continue in wickedness, you do this to the poor, you da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Charges go on and on and on, and it's all, it's, I mean, mostly bad news. Spoiler alert. Well, this is one time in the text where we get a long passage where here's all the things you've done, and yet, everybody got repentant? In spite of the wickedness that we see, largely on the part of the people that he's just described in that passage that I just read, what we see in response to that is actually a people that sort of desire righteousness instead. So, Listen to what they say in verse 9, chapter 59, verse 9. It's difficult to get where the parts of when people are speaking, but there's condemnation that's preached against them right here. But he says here in 9, 
Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. Does that sound different from, the, from a lot of the, what you get in a lot of the prophets? That's different. That's a change. There's a difference here. This is the response of the new covenant. This is what happens as a result. What's the new covenant? Do you remember the new covenant? What is it? It's proclaimed in lots of places in the Old Testament and the prophets. I'm going to do something new. I'm going to remove your heart of stone. I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. And the definition of that heart of flesh is I'm going to put my spirit within you. And I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And here's how this relationship is going to work. When my spirit is in you, you're going to cry out, Abba, Father. You're going to say to me, woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. You're going to say, I am a sinner who needs forgiveness. So what's happened to these people, the charges have been laid against them, and they respond saying, justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness. And for brightness, and we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble upon, stumble at noon as in the twilight. Just like it's in the darkness, we stumble. Look at 14. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and uh, that, yeah, that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then in his, with his own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. Who's he talking about here who did this? This is the servant who came to do it on behalf of the people. He saw there's no one to do it. This man did it. He put on, do you, do you recognize that language? You put on righteousness as a breastplate. Hey, when you get up in the morning, put on your breastplate of righteousness. What is the breastplate of righteousness? It's, the, it's what Christ put on as the servant of God who came to live for his people. Paul's telling you, don't put on your own armor of God. Put on God's armor. It's God's armor that he literally put on himself and lived for you. Now you can actually clothe yourself as Christ did. You can live as Christ. And, so, and the helmet of salvation, well, there it is. Put on garments of vengeance for clothing, wrapped himself in a zeal as in zeal as a cloak, according to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. So what we see is this Christ is living on behalf of them, giving them righteousness. There is a newfound desire for repentance, and there's a recognition that they have done wrong. And then what we see is there, there's a reality that's striking them that God has really come to them in wrath. He's not come in peace. He's come in wrath. Look at uh, 63, uh, 1. Just, just the first verse here. This is all we're going to read. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? Who, uh, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Why is, his, why, why is he soaked in crimson? Do you know why he's soaked in crimson? 
They ask, why is your apparel red? Look at verse 2. Why is your apparel red? Why is it soaked in crimson? And your garments like he who treads out the winepress. And he says, I have trodden out the wine. The winepress, is that a good thing? No, not in the Bible it's not. <laughs> the the winepress is the place of wrath. Well, how do we know that? Well, he says, who is this who comes from Edom and Bozrah? And you're reading that in 60, 63 and you're going... That's one of those things in Hebrew poetry. You're like, well, I don't know what you're talking about, right? Well, if you've been paying attention, if you've been paying attention in Isaiah, you would have known it actually comes from uh, Isaiah 34. Look at Isaiah 34, just the passage right before it in, in, on your list there. In verse 6, The Lord has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys and rams, for the Lord has a sacrifice in Bozrah, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. What has he done there? He's judged them. That's that run of passages where he's judging everyone. He's been to Edom, and he killed them all with a sword. And he went to Bozrah, and he killed them all with a sword. And then he walks into Israel in chapter 63, and he's from Bozrah and Edom, and his, his, there's blood all over his clothes, and they're like, hey, what's up? Hey, why, is your, why do you have blood all over your clothes? <laughs> I've just been to Bozrah and Edom. That means run. <laughs> That's what that means. Um, and so he, they, there's a recognition that he's come from the pagan nations and the same wrath that he's brought to the pagans, he's brought to his own people. And there's a seriousness with which he's coming to judge and they're, they're once again brokenhearted and they recognize that they have to repent, which are in passages you can read later so we can get moving through this. All right. So... Out from that, there is a, a people who are realizing that God is serious and they have to repent. And then moving out from that is a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. Am I on the right screen? Okay. Uh, is a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. And the wicked are typified as a group of leaders who are blinded by their own spiritual ignorance. And it's, uh, and, and, and it's all the people, not only those blind people, but all those, the blind, that follow the blind. Right? I think you probably have, have heard of this before. Uh, he mentions this. Let's look in Isaiah, let's see, 57. Let me get there. 57, uh, 3 to 10, let's see. Uh, uh, oh, wait, no, no, no. Go, go back up to 56, 9 to, 9 to 12, and just look at verse 11. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They are never enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding they have all turned on their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow we'll be like this day, great beyond measure. So it's, it's these people who are shepherds who have appointed themselves as leaders who are blind leading the blind. Look at Matthew 15, 12 to 14. Then the disciples said to him, came to send his, do you know the Pharisees were offended by what you said? And he answered, <laughs> Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into the pit. This is, this is one of those passages. It's not a quote of Isaiah, but if you've read Isaiah and you're familiar with Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, you're catching, you're picking up what he's laying down. All right? You're, you're kind of smelling what he's stepping in. All right. So, by contrast, the, the contrast with those is a people who are comprised of a broken and contrite spirit who find strength 
in the Lord in spite of being hated by their brothers. Look at Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, whose inhabitants, uh, who, who inhabits etern eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is contrite and lowly, and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. This is 66, 1 to 6. Um, oh, that, the, sorry, that's not the passage that I wanted to read. I wanted to read Matthew 15, right? Where am I at? 15, 12 to 14? Nope, that's not it either. 5, five 11, 12, that's right. Okay, there we go. Now we're cooking with gas. All right. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the, the prophets who were before you. Um, so, and I was right about 66, 1 to 6. When you read through 66, 1 to 60, again, he talks about people who are, uh, um, who are uh, killing and persecuting their brothers because they, they won't follow. And he, Jesus is here in the New Testament going, the kingdom has come, you are the reconstituted people, you are the people that are going to be restored to newness of life, and because of that, you're going to have people that put you out of synagogues. You're going to have people that persecute you and utter all kinds of things against you on my account. All of this is coming from Isaiah. Every last bit of it. It's all right there. All right. In the end, what's going to happen? So, again, we, we, we're seeing a repentant people. We're seeing a contrast here between wicked and righteous in this next level. Um, and what happens? In the end, the wicked are removed from the eternal city, and they face the justice of God, while the servants will not merely inherit an eternal city, but will possess a new earth. Look at Isaiah 65, 1-7. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am. To a nation that was not called by my name, I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs, and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh, and broth tainted, of tainted meat is in their vessels, who say, keep, your, keep to yourselves, do not, do yourself, do not come near me, for I am too holy for you. These are a smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will indeed repay in their lap both your iniquities and your father's iniquities together, says the Lord. Because they made offerings on the mountains and, have, and insulted me on the hills, I will measure into their lap payment for their former deeds. So you got the wicked that are perishing. But then what happens in the, in the following passage? For behold, in 17, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the sound a weeping, a cry of distress. No more shall there be an in, in, it, uh, in it an infant who lives only a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Now, that verse right there is, you, you read that and you're like, what? What are we talking about here? And we're going to, that's part of those like weird, crazy passages that we're going to come back to. So just hold on to those. But the point is, 
uh, he's describing two, two different things that are taking place. One, wicked, removed from the eternal city. And the second, a new earth. He creates a new earth, he says. Here's the new earth, and here's the people that are going to be in it. And this is the kind of creation that it's going to be. And, um, and obviously filled through with images in this in Revelation. Revelation 21, two, 1 to 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. Um, 9 to 14. Then came one of the seven angels, who had seven bowls of the seven lampstands of the last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he's taking him to see the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Who's that? Uh, the church. That's us. That's us. People of God. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me, what did he show me? A holy city. Jerusalem. Coming down out of heaven from God. What? Oh, he's taking me to see the people. And then he describes them with walls and people, and uh, walls and gates and all this kind of stuff, and what, what are these people built on? They're built on jewels, and... There's gates all around, and the wall had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the, what? 12 tribes, and what else? 12 names of the apostles of the Lamb. So, is it a city, or is this a people? It's a people who comprise the holy city, and what are they built on? Testimony of the apostles and prophets. All right, Last, lastly, just real quick, let's close this. Ultimately, all of this is going to be built from those who come from every nation, every tribe, and every tongue. So that's nation. Uh, again, you can go back through these passages. They're, they're there for you. Uh, I've included them in your packet. Um, these sections in Isaiah, obviously, are really difficult, and they're hard to interpret. Uh, in a lot of places, it's very difficult to understand who's speaking, who they're speaking to. It's, those answers are not always straightforward, and I recognize that. But what we have to remember is that Christ's death is the inauguration of the new and eternal kingdom. That's the inauguration of it. It started. It's begun. How do we know that? Well, why do you think Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. He doesn't say it will come. He doesn't say that's going to happen in the future. He says it's already happened. It's taken place. It's done. Why does he say you're glorified in Romans 8? Why does he say that? I'm not glorified. I am very much living in a body of flesh, and my wife can attest to that. Why does he say I'm glorified? It's done. Your life is hidden with Christ. When Christ was on the cross and he said, it is finished, turns out he meant it. Done. It's over. So we have to realize that we're, we're in an inaugurated kingdom. What, what is the quintessential picture? The finest tip point of the picture of the kingdom of heaven right now, on earth. What is it? Look to your left and to your right. You ever a professor do this? Look to your left and to your right. You're looking at it. 
So then, just answer me this. Riddle me this, Batman, all right? Why is it that Paul spends so much time in all of his letters to all of the churches saying, stop griping at one another. Stop gossiping. Stop backbiting. Why does he spend so much time saying that? Because we spend so much time doing it. But why should we stop? Because those people that you're griping about and that you're backbiting and that you're hating are going to be with you for eternity. And if they're not going to be with you for eternity, that means you're in hell. So think about it. It's so important, church, that you grasp what your job is. You have to understand what you've been made into. This is the new creation. New earth that we anticipate coming when Christ returns, the difference is sin is going to be removed. But the realities are going to be the same. Better, yes, but the same. Be living next to each other in communion with one another. It's begun now. So when the world comes in here, because by the way, our services are made public, you can come in here anytime you want to and you can observe what goes on in a Christian church. We're not Mormons, we're not Jehovah's Witness. You can come in here and watch anytime you want to. When they come in, what are they going to see? Are they going to see this looks like the new earth in here? Or are they going to see this looks like hell? Depends. That's why Paul says, is there backbiting? Is there gossip? Is there slander? Is there anything other than love in that room? If there is anything other than love, you need to get rid of it. That may mean preaching against it. certainly means that. Confess your sins, repent of it, change right now. It may also mean cutting the people loose. That's the hard part. But if that's what it means, then that's what it means. Questions? 